Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Gore Vidal once said, we are the United States of amnesia. We learn nothing because we remember nothing. We tend to delude ourselves into thinking of the United States as a liberating force for peace in the world and that we are exceptional with nothing but the best intentions. What have we learned from our involvement in Vietnam, Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan? As our guests today suggest, we must not let these memories slowly fade away, with the amnesia paving the road for a new military debacle and hegemonic dominance. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings. Greg and I are excited to have our guest today. Vijay Prasad is an American-based Marxist historian living in Chile I, I right now, but I guess you're a world traveler and, and uh, you've written over 20 books and you're co-founder of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, editor of books, recently wrote a book uh, with my good friend Noam Chomsky. And I would love to chat with you about this. BJ, uh, welcome to our show. I've been following you and uh, reading. I, I I literally read three or four of your books in preparation for this, and you are one of my new um, one of my new go to uh, historians. You're 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 quite prolific, and so far I don't necessarily disagree with you very much. So that's that's good. Welcome. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. That's so warm of you. Yeah. yeah thanks. Yeah. So we wanted to wanted to just have you on, and and I when I, I emailed you, uh, we I wanted to get your idea about the the your you know the situation in Ukraine and that kind of quagmire, and also you have been writing so much on China, and I discovered that you have been co-editing a journal. Uh, tell me how to pronounce the name of this journal, BJ. It's Wenhua Zhongheng. Okay, and it yeah. and it it it's it's um. I also have it near me because um, I was just re-looking at something in there. So we're we're at the same place. Okay, and I uh, read the uh, you know the, the the one of your journals. I guess you just started this project. You're working in kind of collaboration with some academics in China trying to, uh, well, tell, tell me about the journal project. Let's start with that. It's a great place to begin because it really speaks a lot to even my politics. Um, okay, I'm a Marxist, but that's actually not what's motivating this because Wenhua Zhongheng is not actually a Marxist journal. One of the things that I'm most, I think, uh, alarmed about is the kind of rise of confrontation between the West and China, not just in terms of trade, not just in terms of you know, military harassment, although I must say that's very dangerous. And the last thing one wants to see is um, any kind of military clash between the United States and China. Um, it would be catastrophic. No, 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 what has alarmed me is the massive disregard um, particularly in the West, for the opinions, thoughts, feelings even of the Chinese people. 
Um, you know, there's kind of assumption that the Chinese are the enemy and that therefore China cannot be taken seriously. And this is there even within the fragments of the left, you know, this idea that China is authoritarian or, you know, et cetera. People just don't seem to make the effort to try to understand what are the debates in China? What are the discussions? What are people thinking about? What's the Chinese viewpoint on the world? And by Chinese, I don't just mean the government of China. I don't just mean um, the Communist Party, although these viewpoints are important and must be understood. But I also mean, you know, broader currents of the intellectual world. What are people discussing and debating? And so, you know, I've been in touch with Chinese academics for many years, trying to make a very sincere effort um, to listen carefully, to understand what's happening. What are these strains of patriotic thinking, strains of various kinds of Marxist thinking, you know, variants of Maoism and so on. How do people see the world today? You know, China on the one side, but also Asia, the, the situation in the West and so on. So we made contact with a journal called Wenhua Zhongheng, also known as Beijing Cultural Review, published in Beijing. Um, it's not a Marxist journal. It's a center-left left journal, um, very broad understanding of, of the situation of China and the world today. They published in a range of issues, uh, made contact with them, talked to them, and then asked them if it might be appropriate for our institute um, to work with Dongsheng News and with Wenhua Dong, uh, Zhongheng to make an international edition. Now, you know, they publish an enormous amount every year. I don't have the means, contrary to what people say online, uh, to translate everything. You know, um, I'm not funded by the Chinese government. Uh, I'm not funded by a big Chinese foundation. Um, so, you know, we decided rather than reprint everything they do, which is complicated, we're just going to do four international editions, English, Spanish, Portuguese. And the problem for us, and I say this very sincerely, is that because there's such a divergence in the intellectual cultures between, say, English, you know, the Anglophonic intellectual culture and Chinese intellectual culture, it's not just a matter of translating the language. You have to actually translate the concepts. Um, there are concepts unique to the Chinese debate which have to come out, you know, what is harmony, for instance, you know, when the Chinese say statements like win-win, win-win development, what are they referring to? What's the, the, the density of that concept? So that's the essence of the partnership. Very happy we've done two volumes so far. It's just early days, but I really hope people read this stuff and try to understand sincerely. What are the internal debates in China? Well, um... One of the things that you said is that, you know, there's 1.4 billion Chinese and we think they're just all the same and if they're not. And you you go overboard trying to express the complexity of China, how important their history is, which we know nothing about. And, uh, and you know, in the journal, the first journal I read, it was, it was wonderful. It, the, the article Socialism and its Historical Process, The Practice and Prospects of Socialism in China, Bat, bot, a battle against poverty. These are all very good academic, um, uh, um, well-written pieces, and it, it, it humanizes the the plight of China. And so I don't know. 
I, I, just to pick I, that up, Pat, just to pick that up, I mean, what you said humanizes, it's so important because, you know, when the information war or the temperature um, is raised by the White House, by um, European capitals, by the media houses and so on, you know, I mean, anytime a Chinese person says anything, it is treated with suspicion. Um, and I find that to be very disturbing, you know, uh, for instance, when when a U.S. government official speaks, I take them seriously. I want to understand what are they saying? And let's be clear that it's not that, you know, if, if the Biden White House makes a statement, it's not that it's not related to the deep histories of the United States. You know, it is the deep histories. You've got to go back and understand the political culture in the country. Why do people talk like this? Why is there this language of destiny? Uh, you know, this comes from a kind of Protestantism, you know, which is very much marks the political landscape, the sense of, you know, destiny and a kind of um, planetary superiority that, you know, people here are on a hill and looking down and trying to, you know, maybe help people sincerely. And that's liberalism, help people, but from on top of the hill. And that's also a political culture. Similarly, let's try to understand the Chinese political culture. And I think that's what I just reflected on your use of the word humanize. Well, he, uh, the President Jing came to our school district in Tacoma, Washington back in 19, uh, 2015. It was one of the first trips to the United States and uh, visited a local high school and invited 100 of the students to come to China. And it was, it was, he was quite remarkable. A lot of security surrounding the visit, uh, but it was, um, you know, it, it, I don't see us doing that. I see us uh, saber rattling with uh, Nancy Pelosi and her idiotic uh, sh shenanigans with Taiwan. And uh, I I don't know. I, I uh, just want to put my head in an oven and turn the gas on sometimes. So anyway, uh, anyway, that's it. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so, so uh, important, the work you're doing to try to bring uh, a picture of of thinking in China to people here. Unfortunately, there's so many obstacles, roadblocks here to hearing anything different. I, I I was really impressed with your takedown, and I thought it was a very succinct and well done takedown of the concept of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. We've had guests on academics uh, from elite schools. We've had them on our show. And they're making a living off of that word. I mean, basically, they're they're trading in it, and it's it's so shallow and so empty and never really explained. But it serves the purpose of of putting blinders on people so they cannot understand a culture that doesn't have exactly the same political structure, procedural structure that we have. They can't understand it. And I, I think back to the term totalitarianism, which was also invented during the Cold War in a similar fashion so they could put together uh, Nazism and communism. That's the whole sole purpose of it. I mean, I picked up on Hannah Arendt and ran with it, but you can't do that now. In Russia, China, they, 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 uh, they, they have a different structure. So they invent a new term, authoritarianism, and it, it, it's just thrown about with no meaning. Could you, could you talk a bit about that? I think our listeners would love to hear you explain why that's that's uh, uh, misleading, at best misleading. Well, it's it's interesting because let's introduce the concept humility into this discussion. 
um, if people living in countries like the United States adopt a slight sense of humility about their own political system, they might allow themselves to better understand things around the world, okay? I mean, you know, look at the US political system. Uh, it is saturated, you know, with money, uh, saturated with money. Money defines the political system. It's difficult for a third party candidate to get on the ballot, let alone raise the money. Um, you know, there used to be a problem, a deep problem of, of, of institutionalized racism at the polling place. Well, the US government 1965 passed an act, Voting Rights Act. That act has been basically diluted to nothing. You know, the Supreme Court has diluted it. So if one looks with some humility at the different political systems, different attempts to get people into a kind of democratic culture, it's not like there's any country in the world that succeeded. And I very much dislike the term, well, it's the best system that's there. It's not the best system, actually, uh, because one of the problems with a kind of representative democracy that relies on money is it alienates a large number of people from a democratic culture. I mean, that's what, say, Donald Trump picked up on. He walked out there and said, you're basically forgotten. It's what Richard Nixon you know, was talking about when he said, there's a silent majority that's not up in arms. But actually, uh, Richard Nixon, you're wrong. It's not a silent majority. It's an alienated majority. It's a lot of people who just don't feel like they can change anything or have any say in, in, in the world. Well, in a country like Cuba, for instance, also accused of authoritarianism, dictatorship, this, that, and the other, um, they don't have the US political system. There's no money in politics. There's no real advertising during elections. There are discussions that take place um, on the airwaves amongst candidates, but that's not advertising. And they also have a, a political and, 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 and communitarian structure where people in neighborhoods are organized. You know, they are part of committees to defend the revolution and so on. If you look at China, there are um, organizations right down to the block level. Um, during the pandemic, for instance, I often ask people in the United States who talk about authoritarianism in China, I ask them, during the pandemic, who knocked on your door? Did anybody come to your door and ask you, hey, listen, Greg, how are you doing? Do you need any medicines? Um, do you need some food? Are you having trouble? Are you running out of cash? Pat, you know, what's it like for you? Do you have trouble, you know, walking your dog? Do you need a... Nobody came to your house, not your neighbors, probably, certainly not an institutionalized structure in your neighborhood, and definitely not the state. The state did not go door to door and do a survey of people. However, in China, neighborhood committees immediately set up. There were kitchens set up to feed people. That's at the neighborhood level. That's not even the big level, but the neighborhood structure is a structure of democracy. Um, it plays a role in the democratic culture. A lot of protests against the government took place at the neighborhood level, these are organized groups. And then as you go up, there are representative structures. You know, you can't govern 1.4 billion people uh, with one emperor, okay? Even during the time of the Qing Empire, they had structures, they had an examination system, they created a bureaucracy and so on. There's a trivial way in which people understand political systems today, you know, and I, I use the word trivial really, really deliberately. Um, I don't use it in an elitist way that, you know, I'm making light of people's understanding, 
But I also think that we should reflect on how there's a lack of density of understanding that political systems are complicated, you know, and in China, much more complicated than anywhere else. There are layer and layer of, of, of institutional formations which are quote unquote elected. Um, why do I say quote unquote? Because it may not look like an election to somebody in the United States. There's no money involved, no advertising. Um, you know, uh, you, you don't have the problem of, of uh, billionaires controlling everything, okay? You just don't have that. You also have the structures outside, um, you know, the representative government. You have organizations of, of workers, organizations of peasants. They play a role in society. I just want people to have a little humility in this conversation. Throwing rocks at other countries which have on them emblazoned the word authoritarianism, it doesn't help you understand how the world works. It might make you feel better about yourself. It might make it easier for you to justify sending your sons and daughters to war against people, but it certainly doesn't help you to understand the word. And when you open the envelope, you can see the word Iraq, okay? It's a great word to, to look at when we discuss this, this problem. Uh, or we can look at the, the, the word Libya, uh, both places where the United States was super confident. These are authoritarian governments and the prophylaxic for that, the antidote for that is US bombing. Look at the mess the United States has made in particularly Libya. Look at the mess. You wanted to sort out authoritarianism, you have created gangsterism there. Yeah, what's the what's the color on the Libyan flag? It's the uh, you know, <laughs> you know everybody has you know, the, you 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 look at these countries who had these great impact about and uh, and we uh, we're ignorant about the country. We don't you know we don't know what what we're there. We just know that we're good, we're they're bad, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned the. Uh some of the folks we've had on who, who favor that term authoritarianism. And I find it interesting, they never bring up polls. They never bring up, and there are international polls taken all the time about credibility in government, confidence in government, uh, support for your government, and so on. And interestingly, the authoritarian country, China, always turns out number one. That is, the people have the most confidence, trust, and they, they, they believe the most in their government. How do you reconcile uh, a pejorative uh, epithet like authoritarianism with that fact? I, I can't make no sense of it, but I've never seen any uh, quote unquote academic who builds a case around authoritarianism ever appeal to those polls. Well, one of the things, Greg, is people who perhaps political scientists who look at this stuff don't engage enough with culture. Culture plays a role. Uh, again, let's start with the United States and then work our way to China rather than the other way around. You know, in the United States, there is a cultural tendency of, you know, don't tread on my land. Don't tread on me. After all, this idea that, you know, um, I'm an individual and, and I, I must do whatever I want to do. You know, even if I don't have the money to do it, I don't want you to interfere with me. Government must not interfere with me. It's a very strong strain of US culture. You know, this idea of antipathy against the government. Um, you know, the government must interfere. I don't want to pay tax, whatever it is. Whether it's the very elites for whom I don't want to pay tax is convenient in this anti-governmental thing, all the way to the most poor working class communities where there's a feeling that government interference 
is going to ruin our lives. You know, this attitude is there right through. And it therefore marks the political culture. You know, you get, say, a weird situation where people run for office, but they are against the government. I mean, you're going to become the senator, but you're against Washington. Uh, makes no sense. But, well, that's where we are, right? China is different. There's a long culture of understanding the importance of the state, you know, despite the fact that there was terrible chaos. And perhaps, actually, I, I want to reverse myself. And that feeling of stability in the state was doubled down because of the long chaotic war that the Chinese suffered from 1937 when the Japanese invaded the Marco Polo Bridge up to 1949. You know, they had the longest Second World War of, of all people on the planet. Uh, it's, it starts two years before Europe and ends four years later. But in fact, the Chinese you know, sense of the state um, was not broken by that period of chaos. It was reinforced the importance of stability. When you talk to people in China, they will tell you that they don't have any problem with the existence of a state. You know, they, they are in fact happy that there's a stable government. Uh, all the polls that come out, including Harvard's poll, which suggested great confidence in the Communist Party, you know, that's not just confidence in communism, okay? We shouldn't exaggerate that. It's not confidence in Marxism or anything. It's confidence in the stability of the form of state they have and the fact that they've been able to bring to the surface a leadership. And I don't just mean Hu Jintao, you know, Xi Jinping, Deng Xiaoping. I mean, the entire swath of, you know, um, of maybe one or two million people who run the state in China. There's confidence that they are some of the most bright people in the country, hardworking, dedicated, and so on. The level of dedication is so high that when the poverty eradication campaign started, the party asked you know, its members to go out there into rural areas in particular to help lift people out of poverty. And millions of carders volunteered, and thousands of them died in this poverty eradication. This was not a... Um, it's not like they didn't pay a price for this. During the COVID pandemic, when Wuhan was seen as the epicenter, um, the party said to doctors, who party members who are doctors, look, we would like you to go to Wuhan and substitute for non-party doctors. If they want to leave, if they are scared of the pandemic, let them leave. And you may remember that when the Wuhan hospital was closed after the pandemic was contained, there was a very important video that came out of doctors and nurses standing in a line and clapping as they then walked out. And they all wore party badges. You know, they were party members who took the risk to go there. So there's a great sense of, um, you know, uh, enduring sense of the importance of the state. And that's a cultural thing. So people who don't look at culture and, you know, you know how I started with the United States, you know, it's not. I'm not pejorative, it's nothing, I'm not making a negative statement. It merely is a fact that in the United States, there is this long feeling, perhaps it had to do with the nature of the migrants who came from England and Scotland and Ireland and so on, this feeling like, you know, we don't want the tyrannical uh, British monarch to govern us. But this idea grew in the United States, anti-state idea. It's not the same history in China. So obviously people relate to their state differently. You know, they have great faith in its institutions. Well, and we we can't control China. And so that's a that's a problem. <laughs> and um it, it's 
My my problem is when I talk to my friends and I try to have them have a different perspective about China and to a certain extent Russia, is just everything that you say it's a it's a it's a pat answer. Like you'll say, um, well, they uh, what about TikTok? They're trying to um, you know control all of our kids and get and 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 use that to infiltrate uh, social media. Well. I you know I I don't know uh what what a five G well they're going to control everything uh, the it it's always that they are this menace that is bent on destroying us and being our enemy rather than celebrating some of the things that they've done the 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 lifting of poverty is probably the single biggest social improvement the world has ever seen in a short period of time period and. The education improvements and the um, climate change and all these things that they do well is never viewed as anything good. It's always viewed as somehow reverting to a threat to us. Um, and that's just a theme that's that's throughout. I, I don't know how to get around it. I, I just don't. So. Well, you started in a very good place, Pat, and I, I want to come back to where you started, but I, I first say... Uh, a U.S. journalist once said that, you know, when you report on North Korea, you can say anything. You don't have to confirm anything. You can say the leader is dead. You can say that, you know, they they drink vodka in the morning and then go out. You know, you can say whatever you want. Nobody yeah. ever confirms anything uh, because you can throw any aspersion against the North Koreans. You know, I thought that was an interesting revelation from a U.S. journalist several years ago. It's become like that about China. You can say whatever you want. You know, nobody really confirms or denies. Um, the New York Times once did a story about quote-unquote influencers. Uh, by the way, I was quite happy to be photographed for that story. They took a, a shot from some webinar I did with, Jing, with Li Jingjing and put that in their Sunday newspaper or whatever. But they were complaining about, um, you know, Westerners who live in China, who are basically, they claimed, weaponized to tell lies about China. So I looked at the accounts of some of these people, you know, what do they do? These are sincere people, okay? These are not quote-unquote useful idiots. They go to some town, temple town, they talk about what they've seen. You know, there's a temple from, you know, the year 400, um, looks in pretty good shape. Then they go and eat somewhere. They say the food is yummy. The trains are amazing. I mean, how is this weaponized propaganda? These are some young kids making videos about their experiences as they live in China, you know, it's hardly weird or, you know, there's like a million, million, billions of young people online who go to Italy, make the same sort of videos, who live in England, same sort of videos, you know, it's commonplace. Um, you know, you have now a family connection to Colombia. If I go online, I bet you I will find five US, you know, kids who live in Colombia who send videos online somewhere, you know, I had a great time yesterday. Went to Medellin, you know, looking for Pablo Escobar, whatever, you know, silly, jokey, fine. But somehow it's sinister when it's China. You see, that sense of sinister um, is incredible. You know, I was recently over three and a half weeks in China. I made a comment on Twitter. I said that, you know, I haven't seen any homeless people in Shanghai. Okay, it's a comment. Okay, maybe there are 100 homeless people there. Maybe there are none. Uh, maybe I said it because I was actually pretty astounded 
that I didn't see homeless encampments, you know. I saw poor people, you know. It's not that they were not poor people. There, there, are, there are very much income differentiation in China, very much income differentiation, and it has increased, um, you know, since the uh, 1970s. Uh, but I can tell you, I didn't see any homeless people. That's uh, what I didn't, that's what I saw. I didn't see any homeless people. Also, I rode on the train uh, from Shanghai to Beijing, 325 kilometers an hour, amazing train, gets there super fast. The Accela, maximum speed, 150 kilometers an hour. Now, these are factual observations. You want, you want a better train system? Make a better train system. Uh, the Chinese happen to have made one. Now, why is it sinister to say that? And that's what I'm interested in. Why does this become sinister? Why, is for, why are, for instance, journalists interested, U.S. journalists, interested to say people like myself who say something like hey look they have a really good train system um why is that somehow something inappropriate uh why must that why must that why must they impugn my my reputation and say oh he's paid to say that well you know when i went to um you know uh to iraq and and said i saw xyz nobody was paying me to say that i was working as a reporter, so I guess I was being paid to say that, sorry, but I wasn't being paid to say that. Um, if anything, I should have taken a job with CNN and be paid to say everything looks great here. Um, that's, you know, embedded paid journalism. I wasn't paid to say the things that I was seeing there, nor in China. These are observations. You don't agree with me that the train runs at 325 kilometers an hour? Show me that it doesn't. And show me that a train, you know, along the Atlantic corridor, the Excella runs faster. These are two factual statements. 325 kilometers an hour, 150 kilometers an hour. There's homeless people in Santa Monica. In fact, I once arrived in Seattle, landed at SeaTac Airport, and then drove into Seattle. And there's a hillside on my right, I remember. And it was almost jam-packed with tents, people staying rough there because the housing prices in Seattle gone crazy. Um, I didn't see that in Shanghai. Now, prove me wrong. Tell me that, well, you didn't go to this place and that place and so on. So there's a way in which anything good in China is sinister. And I find that to be rather disturbing. Uh, you know, my I have a 10-year-old grandson and he has a, quite a, a fixation with his iPad and iPhone. And sometimes he is just lost in that rather than engaging with other people. And, you know, I, I guess he's just a typical of a lot of kids his age, but China has that situation where at a certain point in time, they're limiting the amount of time that kids can be on the internet. And um, the Chinese parents think this is great. <laughs> they like it. It, it. They're supportive of it. How is that pictured? A big brother, George Orwell, controlling everybody. You know, they'll take a little... A little event like that, somebody trying to desperately get a handle on social media and young children and screen time and so forth, and they they figure out a way to spin it to this is um, this is a horrible authoritarian regime and you know they should be destroyed or whatever. I don't know. Ninety nine percent of parents, Pat, would say, "Please, somebody tell my kid to shut that damn thing off. I can't do it." Um, I'll tell you a funny story. In Kerala, in southwest India, there's a communist government. Uh, the chief minister's name is Pinarai Vijayan. Kerala is a state of about 37 million people. 
it's not a it's not a tiny place um pirana vijayan was the chief minister right through the pandemic well in year 1 of the pandemic one of the things he did was every evening pirana vijayan would do a public press conference he would answer any and every question it's pretty interesting press conferences okay when he would do the press conference almost the entire state would put the television on and watch because people were anxious about the pandemic you know what are the new measures and things like that it was very popular a very popular filmmaker not a communist a popular filmmaker um had young kids and his kids used to refuse to go to sleep or yeah i think it was about go to sleep they refused to go just imagine also they didn't put their ipads off or whatever um so what he did was he took a clip of the chief minister's weekly or daily press conference and he overdubbed it so imagine the boy's name is greg okay so he had the chief minister saying greg when your father says to go to sleep you must obey and go to sleep and he posted that online of first the clip and then his son's reaction to watching it as if the chief minister was speaking to him that went viral parents across the states were like please chief minister tell my children to do x y z you see it's interesting it really comes down to different two things one is a different cultural understanding of government you know if you don't have this suspicion of government it's not a bad idea there's no big brother it's just your government it's your representative government secondly if the government is efficient and trusted and if the politician isn't reviled then this becomes something that people appreciate you know the government has said look don't do this in the united states for instance so by so partisan you know people are in camps in, in that sense so whoever gets elected is not really ever the president of the country that person still is a democrat or still is a republican um it's hard for people in the us to imagine that when a leader gets elected in countries say either it's in a state like kerala or it's in a country like china the population sees them as their leader in re in the last 20 odd years in the united states i don't think that's been the case maybe it goes back to even nixon um that when they get elected it's so by it's so partisan that entire part of the population maybe up to almost 40% doesn't see this person as the actual leader of the state they see them as illegitimate and i well remember this again it's not a republican thing or a democratic thing it's both when um obama was the president republican said he's illegitimate when trump was the president democrat said he's illegitimate this is a experience you just don't have in countries like china right vj vj you you do a masterful job of of explaining the cultural differences between china and the us and it does explain a lot of the misunderstanding on the other hand this anti china virus that's 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 uh erupted in the united states if you go back 15 years even 10 years the population's uh view of china was much much more popular much more favorable than it is today it seems as though in the last decade or perhaps even less even more quickly attitudes towards china have just fallen apart i mean people have just become very very how do you account for that how would you explain right. that that's a good point yeah yeah it it's interesting so i've been thinking reflecting a lot on this um but i would like to actually put it in a longer frame in the 1950s 
Time magazine had a cover story of the head of Mao with locusts coming out of it. That was a Time magazine story. Um, so when Mao and the communist triumph in 1949, there is a deeply negative impression of China created. Because remember, a lot of the issue with Joe McCarthy wasn't about the Soviet Union. It was the old question in the State Department, who lost China? Who lost China was the initial spur for Joe McCarthy's lists and so on. It wasn't just about the Soviet Union, because in some ways, you'll also remember that during the war, um, there was a very sympathetic attitude towards the USSR as a consequence of the fight against fascism and Nazism. They had to manufacture a new kind of hatred against the Soviets after 1945. I mean, you know, it is extraordinary within the bureaucracy of the United States. A lot of people dealt with the Soviets and had a very favorable impression. I remember learning this from Paul Sweezy, who worked in the U.S. government and used to say, even the more reactionary people in our departments had a favorable understanding of the Soviet Union at the time. A lot of the early 1950s antipathy was what happened to China. And this anti-Chinese attitude uh, goes right through. It's a it's a it's a straight line um, into the present. However, um, there is a change for a brief period uh, in the time of let's say Deng Xiaoping. Um, in fact, when um, when uh, Kissinger and Nixon go to China and they meet with Mao and Chuan Lai and so on, and there's that agreement made. Even that doesn't seem to fully change the attitude toward China. Um, it changes to some extent under Deng Xiaoping. And my sense is the reason why United States had a favorable attitude, why the media was pumping it up and so on, is that for about 15 to 20 years, China operated as the cheap labor for U.S. corporations. So, you know, most of the high tech was just produced in Shenzhen and in other places. And unlike Japan at that time, you know, in the 2000s when China joins the WTO. In that time, unlike Japan, um, the Chinese were not selling Chinese goods to the United States. You remember, the anti-Japanese feeling was not because there was US production in Japan. It's because Japanese cars were being sold in the United States. You were seeing Nissan, you were seeing Datsun, you were seeing Japanese brands, Toyotas. That created anger in the United States. You know, why are we buying Japanese cars? Buy USA and so on. During the time from the, when China joins the WTO, when Shenzhen grows, Shenzhen, Shenzhen is a major city now. China wasn't selling Chinese brands to the US. China was making the goods for US brands. Apple is the key one. You know, Apple doesn't make phones. Those are made by Chinese subcontractors. So there was no, China, you didn't have to go into a, a car dealership and buy a Chinese car, you know? You bought cars, they, they might have 80% of them may have been made in China. Or you went into a shop and bought an Apple phone, feels like a US phone, it's actually Chinese. And this changes in a sense uh, when the Chinese start to displace um, US corporations and their own products start to sell in the world. Huawei's emergence is a direct existential challenge to Silicon Valley. And the antipathy then, you get an ja anti-Japanese style antipathy that develops around Huawei. You remember that it was under Obama and then, and then Trump that we got this immense attack 
on Huawei, so, such, such an attack that the daughter of the founder was arrested in Canada. Um, she was the chief of accounts of Huawei and held there you know, for very long, many months, very long period of time. She was just actually going through Canada to go to South America, um, but they held, you know, they arrested her in Canada. So I think, and I've talked to this with Chinese intellectuals, the belief is that if Chinese companies continue to merely provide labor for US brands, there would have been no problems. The problem is that because of Chinese um, very intelligent use of international trade law, Chinese firms have been able to supplant US firms in many areas, green technology, robotics, high-speed rail, uh, telecommunications. They are already talking about uh, 6G, you know, not 5G anymore. Solar, um, solar is a- Solar, internet solar. of all things, you know, and all these things. Because they are directly confronting US corporations, this is where suddenly the whole thing tipped. You know, it was okay. As long as you are the labor force for US companies, it's fine. But if you're going to compete, then it's not okay. And that's why you can see Chinese government officials say, we are not going to reverse our development. That's the phrase they use. We don't want to reverse our development. You know, because you feel threatened by our rise, we are not going to stop uh, rising. And I think that to me, I don't know if, if that's the full answer to this, but it helps me understand a lot about the anxiety. It helps me also understand why Tim Cook of Apple, you know, that's a company whose employees are largely liberal, okay? They're all based in California. Tim Cook himself is not a, a, a react, you know, like a Republican or anything. During Trump's trade war, Cook went to see Trump. I thought that was interesting. What is Cook from Apple? I mean, Apple's Products are made in China. The trade war was going to hurt Apple. Tim Cook told Trump, hey, listen, go ahead with the trade war. It's good for us. We might take a hit now, but we have a long-term benefit. We'll take the short-term pain, but the long-term gain is worth it. And he only complained about the fact that Trump's trade war was benefiting Samsung. And he wanted to complain about that. But even the liberals, as it were, in of the capitalist elite were quite happy for a full-scale trade war against China. So this wasn't some sort of protectionist, you know, John Birch society stuff. This was straightforward class warfare on an international scale. Yeah. Greg wrote an article in uh, ML Today about how you were kind of denigrated by the left because of your relationship with China. Nobody can have good intentions with this. this. If you're saying something good about China, it must mean that somehow you're compromised or, um, and that just that just frustrates the heck out of me. I don't know, Greg, what do you think? You wrote the article on it. What, what's your thoughts about yeah, this? BJ yeah. is a, a sheep puppet. He's a puppet of the Chinese regime. Yeah, how know? much money do you get, by the way? Uh, do they put it in bags and deliver it? I, Moscow, I Moscow gold, you get Moscow gold, but from China. Yeah. <laughs> You know, back to your point about uh, the changes, I was, I was, I listened carefully, and I, I found that to be a very sound uh, 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 political economic explanation of these changes. And even the last week, Wall Street Journal had a couple of articles. One about siloing. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but a lot of U.S. corporations now are breaking in two, so their Chinese uh, group is is a separate corporation. They're kind of preparing for this war to expand 
and they keep their U.S. group independent of that. And then there's a story on um, uh, Sequoia Capital, which details, it's a, an account that details the pressure put upon this venture capital firm who got massive amounts of money to invest in China to get out. And they use national security as the excuse to put the pressure on, on Sequoia Capital. So they had raised a one point, almost $10 billion. And then that alarmed the US government and they, they put the strong arm on them. So uh, it does seem that there's been a turn and it's been a turn around this political economic uh, issue of, of China arising, China's economy arising. Is that fair? Is it fair to characterize it that way? I mean, look, frankly, whether we talk about decoupling or siloing or any of these mechanisms um, to split the world economy into, let's say, a Western section and um, a Eurasian or Asian section, uh, it's not going to work. Uh, this is an illusion. Um, let's take a couple of examples of how this is not going to work. Um, firstly, Japan, a G7 country, very close ally of the United States, large parts of it basically an aircraft carrier for the US. Um, Japan cannot, for instance, break with either China or Russia. I mean, you would have thought Japan would have stopped buying energy from Russia. You know, it, it, it signed the G7 statement. <coughs> it has accepted the G7 sanctions, but they can't. The reason they can't is they rely on Sakhalin. <coughs> sorry. <coughs> they rely on Sakhalin Island oil and natural gas. In fact, Japan is a big investor in Sakhalin too. Uh, they can't cut off. If Japan was to cut off from China right now, it would be catastrophic for the Japanese economy. Taiwan has been begging the United States to downgrade the rhetoric because their chip manufacturing is going downhill. You know, their economy is in a serious uh, problem. Most Asian countries joined the RCEP trade agreement with China. Um, you know, the, a country like India, which doesn't have major trade with China, still doesn't want to see um, <coughs> you know, any kind of escalation into direct military confrontation, even though they are participating one way or the other. Australia's largest trading partner is China. They can't cut off from China, even though they are joining the United States to escalate, even expanding the Darwin Air Base to bring in nuclear bombers and so on. But they are totally reliant on the Chinese economy. So there is no path forward for decoupling or siloing for most of the world. Even for US companies, this is just a good demonstration of how decoupling cannot happen. They're going to pretend that they've decoupled. Siloing is a Potemkin village. You know, you're not really going to silo. And by the way, US and other corp multinationals have done this for years. Um, you know, you'll register other companies that continue to do business. Um, I mean, what? why do we need to look at it for, in this way? Let's go back to the Soviet Union. Armand Hammer was a major investor in the USSR at a time when the United States was fighting against the USSR. You know, I'm talking about now the 1920s, um, when the white armies were attacking 1930s and so on. There were U.S. corporations and, and business people that were dealing with the Soviets right through. So I feel like 
this instrument of the trade war hurts people a lot. It hurts some companies. It hurts a lot of the world economy. But it cannot actually go all the way. Um, because these countries, as I mentioned, Australia, Japan, you know, South Korea, they rely on China. They cannot do the full break. And many U.S. corporations also. Who's going to make the Apple phones? It's not going to be in India. And I'll tell you why it's not going to be in India. India has a couple of net advantages. English language is available, although the Indian working class doesn't speak English. Okay, so that's also an illusion. But in India, the working class is not as well fed as the Chinese working class. The Indian working class is not given the kind of health care that you have in China. You don't have the kind of housing and the, the transportation. So the Indian working class is prone to getting sick, cannot concentrate for an eight-hour day, often has to go home because somebody is falling ill, has problems in the house because there's no water, um, they don't have electricity, children are delayed to school and so on. So, you know, you can't just take India, China, big countries, same population, say, let's move a factory from China to India. The character of the working class is different. And that kind of thing is understood by corporations, okay? I'm not the first one to say it. You can go and look at how corporations are in horror because they know. You can't just take out, you know, a, a, a high-tech high firm, take it out of one context, put it in another. You know, the workers are just not ready. Um, if you look at high-tech firms, okay, it's not that you need a PhD to work there, but you need literacy. You need some level of mathematics. Uh, you need some level of basic understanding of, of chemistry, maybe, and so on. You've got to learn these things to stand even on a, on a, um, on a you know, if you're working on an assembly line, you still need to understand, you still need to read. Uh, you know, there's so much robotics in these factories now. So you can't just pivot, you know, Indian workers don't have the level of literacy as Chinese workers. And that's because of Chinese socialism. You know, whatever people might say, they'll say, oh, it's not socialist anymore, whatever. Man, you're comparing apples and oranges or maybe apples and buffaloes or whatever. You got to look at the comparison between India and China. Then you'll understand how China is socialist. and So all of those uh, hundreds of years of uh, colonialism didn't quite deliver what it was supposed to, I think. I, I remember a rant you did on YouTube where you were frustrated with, after all that time, is only 13% literacy. And literacy, as you defined it, or as they define it, was just the ability to write one's name. After all of that, uh, you know, so it was an extraction. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, helping the people in India, for sure. Hey, you've got to talk to me. This is why I brought you on, because I loved your book with Noam Chomsky. This is a, a a look at our foreign policy from Vietnam War, which is you know kind of where I got my chops, political chops, to the withdrawal of Afghanistan, and um, it's it's a conversation you had with Noam, and I I just thought it was a a wonderful overview of how misguided, continually misguided our foreign policy is, and when we make a mistake, we don't learn from it. We just pump more money into the defense contract and double down. And we've been doubling down for uh, quite a while. Tell, tell me about your, your relationship with um, Noam and, and this book, uh, The Withdrawal. Well, look, you know, Noam Chomsky is an absolute legend. 
um, in terms of you know the work he's done uh, to lift up voices of people who have been brutalized by imperialism. I mean, you know, people generally think of Noam as somebody who you know gives speeches and so on. You forget that during the war on Vietnam, he goes to Hanoi. Uh, he teaches at the university, which was bombed. Uh, he goes to the plain of Jaz in 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 Laos to see to investigate what's going on. And Noam goes to Turkey, you know, to our, I mean, the guy in his long life wasn't just sitting at the desk in, in at MIT, you know, he keeps telling me, oh, you're the one who travels and I'm the one who just, and I'm like, no, man, in, you know, you were there in Vietnam. And, and what's interesting is people know, you know, Jane Fonda went there and X went there and Tariq Ali went there. But Noam's journey to Vietnam is not so well known. He's a very humble person when it comes to his own um, quite brave actions, you know, and that was a very brave action. Anyway, so I was interested in this book because it was quite stunning how when the U.S. pulled out of, of Afghanistan, the pullout, you know, many people made the comparison with Vietnam. And I thought that was quite stunning, that comparison. And I thought, well, let's talk about it, but let's talk about it for a generation that doesn't remember how these wars started, you know, doesn't, don't remember um, you know, the first Gulf War. They don't have any clue uh, that who Saddam is or whatever it is. And I was like, you know, the, you know, the conversation, um, conversations that Noam has, they often range uh, all over the place. I thought, well, let's, let's do that. Let's have a whole bunch of kind of range all over and then let's create a book. This book took a lot of work. This is not just a transcript that has been put out there. Uh, we work together to shape it to make sure there's a kind of logical argument to help younger readers in particular um, who don't know the references gain, gain a sense of what's happening. So I wanted very keen actually to talk about how the two Iraq wars in 1991 and 2003 and the war against Afghanistan 2001, how in each of the cases, the people who were attacked wanted to negotiate. Um, I was very keen that we put that front and center on the table. Saddam tried desperately to negotiate in 1990, December. Um, in two, from 2001 to 2003, uh, Saddam tried to negotiate and say, don't attack us. You know, we don't have weapons of mass destruction. You can come and see anything. Hans Blick goes there. All of that forgotten. And the Taliban in 2001, right after September 11th, sent emissaries to Pakistan to talk to the U.S. saying, look, we'll deliver bin Laden if you want him, but we can't send him to you. We'll send him to a neutral country. All of that is forgotten, you know, and it's forgotten that the U.S. in each of the cases said, forget it. We're not going to negotiate. We're coming to bash you. And based on that, we're coming to bash you. Uh, the idea developed of the Godfather. Um, that's the key part of this book is that you know, the, when it comes to foreign policy, U.S. government operates as a godfather. And I was so interested, you know, recently to hear two clips. One, a few days ago, Joe Biden was on a tarmac where he said, Putin has been defeated in Iraq. Uh, I thought that slip was really interesting. Putin has been defeated in Iraq, he said. And then a few months ago, George W. Bush made a statement where he said, um, you know, we condemn the illegal war on Iraq. And then he stopped and he said, I mean, Ukraine. And then he stopped and he said, but also Iraq. 
And then he stopped and said, that comes from being in your 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm in my 70s. And one of the things that I always like to say to young people is we're bringing up the Vietnam, how my politics were shaped with the Vietnam War. And I use what is in your book, which is if you ask people how many Vietnamese were killed in the Vietnam War, the average millennial will say, I, you know, 100,000, 200,000. It is two to four million, you know, it, that and that's compared to 50,000 of our of our our troops. You know, we have no conceptual understanding of what the impact these conflicts have on the rest of the world. And part of that is in the conclusion of your book where you're talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan. The last thing we did, the, our last uh, military uh, intervention was blowing up a car with 10 people, of which there were seven children, which took us two weeks to admit that we made a mistake. We blamed it on them. You know, they were terrorists. They were. I, and the whole situation that uh, Afghanistan's worse now than it's ever been, that half of all the drone strikes were civilian targets, were uh, targeted, where civilians were killed. These things are just, they're it, it, amnesia. It's just gone. Uh, what's the next thing? Okay, oh, no, now let, let's go get uh, Putin. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know. It, it, I, I, that's what I think the, the book deserves attention because it just so clearly reminds you how our foreign policies are problematic. And I can't believe the rest of the world isn't more pissed off at us than, you know, than they are. I don't know. It's pretty think? pissed off. I mean, you know, if we're, if we're honest, bad people are pretty pissed off at the U.S. government. I mean, it's a reason why on the Ukraine war, it's a reason why so many governments around the world are simply not getting in line. Firstly, the contradictions no longer, um, you know, favor backing the West 100%. You know, again, the other day, um, um, you know, Biden said, most of the world is with the United States. And he said about 40 countries. But Joe, there are 193 countries in the world. 40 countries don't constitute most of the world. The only example he gave was Japan. Doesn't constitute most of the world. Most of the world actually is against NATO's conflict um, in Europe and in the South China Sea, including India, big ally of the US, very much against these conflicts. You know, the Indian foreign minister was recently asked about India joining NATO plus, and he said, no, we don't accept the NATO template. We just don't accept the NATO template. We don't want to be in a grouping like that. So, you know, what can one say? You pull your hair out at one level, right? I mean, um, on the other hand, and I mean, I would like to emphasize this. There is a growing section of people in Western countries, um, not just in the United States, but even in, in parts of Europe and so on, where there is a sort of frustration. Uh, with this kind of permanent war complex. You know, there's a frustration. Um, and I, I would say this, and I, we don't need to get into it in too much detail, but, um, you know, the Ukraine war has accelerated a lot of changes in the world. Um, people look at the Ukraine war merely about the war itself. I look at that conflict for its global ramifications more, more than for the war itself. Um, I don't know much about contemporary Russia. I know a lot about the Soviet Union. I don't follow... Russia much. I don't know much about 
many Eastern European countries. But what I do know is that that was accelerating a lot of changes. Um, you know, it's strengthening the hands of the BRICS. The BRICS will meet in, in, in South Africa in August. Let's see what comes of it. Um, countries with very different political um, leaderships, India, Brazil, you know, right-wing India, left, center-left, Brazil, um, you know, these countries are coming together on a common platform. We are calling it in our institute, the new non-alignment. Um, I'm not sure exactly where this will go, but certainly there is a kind of, uh, of accelerated change taking place around the politics of the planet. But again, I don't know where it will go, but it really is interesting. Yeah. Well, it, I highly recommend this book and it's, um, and the introduction is by, um, um, oh, what's her name? Angela Davis. And we had Norm Finkelstein on uh, last week, and all three of us, Greg, me, and Norm, all raised our hand that we had Angela Davis posters in our uh, dorm rooms when we were in the uh, 60s. So uh, I, 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 there, there you go. So any final uh, thoughts, Greg? No, I enjoyed this immensely, and, and it was quite educational. I, I just uh, I salute the work you're doing. Uh, you really you, you touch all bases, and you influence so many people. Just please keep it up. We hope maybe we'll have you on again. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, let's do this again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll link to your journal. That journal, I would recommend anybody uh, putting that on their radar and um, and a couple of your books. And, um, you know, there you go. This was a great, great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.